Today on the LA Countdown, the podcast, I'm Lucas Servodio, and welcome to the second ever edition of this future award-winning podcast. The first episode was a blockbuster that shattered the internet into a million pieces. The question on everybody's lips is this, what kind of sequel will today's show be? Will it be a Godfather Part 2 style tour de force, or a flaccid reboot a la Matrix Resurrections or The Hangover 2? Speaking of the cinema, Cousin Saul and I will review Foodie Satire, The Menu, starring Ray Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy. If you haven't seen it yet, please be warned that there will be spoilers. Before we get into that, though, we'll recap some of this week's hottest food news, including one man's brazen embezzlement of $1.5 million in chicken wings from Chicago public schools. Somebody get this guy a DoorDash account, am I right? Without further ado, let's chow down. Okay, back by popular demand, it's aspiring infatuation Seattle social media intern, Cousin Salman. How you doing today, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. My application for a social media intern is not progressing the way I would have hoped. I got an email back from them just looping me saying Amy only likes 12 restaurants in Seattle. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'm out of the running. But, you know, <laughs> try, 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 try again. Well, this is as good as a time as any to announce that in fact we're not giving up we're launching oh, no. a campaign right <laughs> do you do you want to announce the campaign right now oh yeah the campaign for the man that has no social media presence to be the social media <laughs> intern at a major national food platform yeah let's kick it off the, so, uh... <laughs> so folks at home if you're hearing this do everything you can post on twitter tiktok whatever resurrect vine post on that and let's get Cousin Salman to be Infatuation Seattle's next social media intern, 2023. <laughs> let's do it. I uh, just end up weirdly like tweeting about Joel Embiid and the Sixers all the time and every food food audience member is completely yeah. confused by what's happening. Except you frame it as, oh, man, I really want to eat this guy. And it gets really weird. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's right, a delicious so, man. He's a delicious man. Um, well... Let's start with with some news bits today. Um, I, I uh, there's quite a bit that's happened in the food world, and I think it makes sense to start with some LA news, uh, as this is primarily an LA podcast. So the LA Times released a list this week of where to eat and drink right now in LA. Right now, being in all caps, there was real urgency to that headline. Um, the reason I want to talk about this is, yeah, we can go over the restaurants and see if there are any that jump out to us. But uh, really, the biggest thing that struck me about this piece is how much it looks like an Eater article. Yeah, it's almost a little disappointing that it, I, I would be willing to bet the LA Times just like poached a couple of Eater folks and then wrote an article with a headline pulled almost directly from Eater and with an interface identical to Eater and ironically with infatuation branding colors. Uh, so yeah, not a, it's, it's like the LA Times is caught up five years later to the way food media is presented and consumed online by every one of their competitors. And yeah, not not the most inspiring piece of piece of media, but hey, yeah. doing something at least. Yeah, I mean, literally pound for pound, it is the exact same thing. It's the list on the left-hand side of the screen and the map, the interactive map on the right-hand side of the screen. I think the that eater could probably sue for this. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, it's actually that crossed my mind. I wasn't sure how much uh, proprietary whatever trademark 
design components they have as part of their stuff. But look, all I'll say is if LA Times had made some different talent decisions with their food department, maybe they have some fresher takes uh, on the way they present food media in LA. That is a story for another day. Uh, we'll tell <laughs> the audience. But uh, regardless, I, I wanted to just bring this piece up to really sort of discuss, is this the right move? Is this the right direction for them to go in? Is, is, is basically copying what Eater and the Infatuation do the right way to compete with them and keep up? Or is it kind of just like entering a saturated market where it's kind of a losing battle? Yeah, I mean, look, it if they had no other ideas, I suppose it's fine. I Look, I, I assume the people who read LA Times will just continue to read LA Times. I don't think this particular innovation is going to get them anywhere in terms of new audiences because the people who read food like this and, and read about lists like this have already found their outlet. So, no, I, I don't think I don't think it was like the 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 smartest strategic move is probably a step up from where they were a bunch. I mean, if it's purely text lists that people have to scroll through, maybe an upgrade from that, but you would have hoped uh, that Jonathan Gold's um, former outlet would have tried to push the envelope a little more when it came to the way they're trying to position themselves in the food media landscape. Yeah. Look, I hope this is just the beginning of an entirely new and interesting direction. Um, but, you know, as a start, it's definitely not very inspiring. I will say I did like some of the shouts on the list. I think I sent this to you mm. earlier, but El Prado yeah. is a bar we know very well in Echo Park, and I wasn't aware at all of sort of the renaissance it's had. No, not at all. I, when I remember it, when I remember of El Prado was, no, it was, it was a nice, nice, dark little wine bar, I suppose. Um, but apparently it's, it's really boomed as a, as a cool new neighborhood you know, standby with a bunch of cool DJs they referenced and and a huge natural wine list. Good for them. Um, and I, yeah. and I, I'm excited to see that. Yeah. I'm up for that. I mean, the cool, th- the cool part of that story was that I think a doorman uh, took over, which is really a real oh. rags to riches story. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Nothing against doormen, of course, but um, you know, moving moving on from LA, I don't have a ton more to say on that. Do you? No. All right, fair enough. Um, LA Times, do better. Give us more to talk about. Um, Eater actually did an interesting three-piece series on a topic I didn't know we needed three pieces of journalism on, and that is the restaurant reservation system. Um, Just to give you a quick recap of what the pieces were, one was basically this like kind of like very – fear-mongery piece about how Resi is kind of a frenemy that collects too much data um, and makes it harder for people to like have affairs and stuff like that, uh, <laughs> which was, was kind of a weird take that I wasn't expecting. Uh, the other was like some pretty generic tips on how to score a tough reservation, like, you know, just find out when they typically put out reservations and just look out for them or just walk in and try your luck. Um, and finally, I, w- I thought the most interesting piece was how this piece on how Resi won, quote unquote, against Open Table in the battle mm-hmm. to like get more users. I think my question for you is are reservations the new sort of like hot topic in terms of like access to restaurants? Uh, no, I, they, they're, they're not. <laughs> they're not. I don't know where a three-piece series like this came from. I was wondering, 
like who generated this particular idea in the in the writer's room or the, or the pitch room. No, it, it was two of, two out of the three pieces were entirely inane. The one about generic tips for scoring a tough reservation was almost a joke. It was like, <laughs> look up when they release reservations. If not, walk in. If it's if it's bad out, if it's raining outside, who knows what will happen? I was like, yeah, no, everyone knows this already. Um, yeah. The, the front of me data piece had an interesting little tidbit at the very end, which was not written by the the main author of the piece, but just like some data highlights about how restaurants use resi data to like distribute their tables, prepare for for an evening, all that. That was kind of cool. But you're right. The main piece that had any any sort of interesting take was essentially a story of like corporate competition between resi and open table. Yeah. And to be clear, even that piece was limited to New York because open table still has like, I think several times the number of overall subscribers and users as resi, but resi seems to have. Yeah. yeah to your seem, point. Seem like, it's, have, it's, like, it's, it's, yeah. It's in like open table is doing it in the suburbs and like flyover <laughs> country, you might say. So does it even yeah. Not matter? Yeah. The quote unquote doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to New Yorkers. New Yorkers apparently resi position themselves as like the cool hip reservation app to use. I don't know. It's a story about how two apps trying to position themselves against each other and, and get market share, but it's not any broader commentary than that. Yeah. It was, I cannot believe they turned out three pieces on this topic. It was silly. I will. I mean, okay. I have a bit of a take on this and that is, I do think there is something happening with reservations and this was a piece mm-hmm. made it. This was a point made in the piece as well, which is reservations now in this day and age hold a cachet and a status symbol. I don't think they used to. And I feel like there's also this element of like finance bros taking them and reselling them online. They're almost becoming like a prized currency that people are trading. I want, I do wonder if this could potentially have some negative implications down the road to the point where like the pendulum could swing and like reservations could be so tough to get that we just lose the concept altogether. Yeah, well, I don't know. So I've won the the idea of a prize reservation. I don't think is a new one, and I only know this from like I don't know you from like old like old media movies. But it's like, oh, you got a reservation at X place. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but the 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 most interesting angle would be the finance bro buying and reselling, essentially in the way of Ticketmaster, right? When you have like you know, scams or, or, or ticket um, aggregators on Ticketmaster or SeatGeek buying a bunch and reselling. I don't even look if the rest, well, the, the bad news would be if the restaurant doesn't get paid, right? So if a bunch of res- yeah. reservations get booked in order to be resold um, and then because they don't get resold for whatever reason, people don't show up at the restaurant, that's bad. Um, yeah. But I think there's also, I mean, there's interesting positive implications for, reservation data too in terms of how restaurants can prepare and plan their evenings and 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 you know book uh book uh full houses in advance i think that's all good um but yeah Yeah, i don't i don't i don't know i i i think it's a little i think the whole it's a bit of a forced story it's a bit of a forced you know what that reminds me of do you know what that reminded me of though the whole like resi as data aggregator or whatnot. It reminded me of that episode of, I think it was Ugly Delicious, where David Chang is talking about mm. Domino and how it's yeah. whatever pizza, but it's a really, really impressive technology company. And yeah. I feel like that's actually what Resi is becoming. And there is, 
some value to that. I don't know what it is, but I feel like that's why that's, that's where the interesting piece lies is like, what, what is, what is the potential for this? Yeah, that's right. He, he literally calls Domino's uh, a tech company and not a, a, a pizza company or a food company. And of course, Resi is literally a tech company. The, there's a, the, the idea here would be how tech integrates into food and influences the restaurant industry, which at large, which with or without Resi, it will do, right? Just like we see technology and analytics enter into sports and other arenas. I'm sure they will, that it, it will into restaurants and probably Resi and DoorDash, Resi and Open table, but also frankly, DoorDash and delivery apps are are kind of the vanguard of that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, as a concept, <laughs> finding it being marginally harder to find reservations in New York, I don't think is a is a story. <laughs> I don't think it's a, a thing that we really need to worry about. What people people want to read, my dude. Um, <laughs> all right, well, let's move on to my favorite news story of this entire week. And that is how a Chicago school administrator was accused of embezzling $1.5 million in chicken wings. Pardon my French, but what the fuck? <laughs> I think this guy is the smartest dumb guy out there. <laughs> He's like, because apparently, and I actually noticed this, in the pandemic, chicken wings became like really difficult to find. Like you literally couldn't buy chicken wings. It was a whole story, actually. Like I missed this. I completely missed this. It was like I mean, Eater was covering it. Others were too. Like Buffalo Wild Wings was like low on inventory of chicken wings. Now I don't know what exactly happened there. <laughs> happened there. Uh, just a bunch of chickens got COVID, and we got <laughs> the the untold story of the pandemic. Just chickens getting dying on mass. Uh, but yeah, this was so. I, I I'm betting this guy like was like, oh man, I can resell chicken wings at a profit. Ends up buying what? How many? How many wings do you bought? So, so the, the math yeah. is. Oh, let, let, let's actually do a guess, right? How many chicken wings do you think one point five million dollars uh, chicken wings buys you? And and this one, is not this is not like going to Buffalo Wild Wings and spending one point five billion dollars. This is wholesale. This is like that's right. Know, yeah. So I'm trying to figure out: is it like you know a dollar per wing? Is it two dollars? Whatever. My, I, I think. If if it's a hundred, if, if it's if it's fifteen dollars for every ten wings, I think that comes out to a hundred thousand wings, and that's going to be my guess. Whole, wholesale ten, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go. You are woefully underestimating this mm. individual. The <laughs> amount of chicken wings embezzled is between three and six million chicken wings. Whoa! Wait, hold on. Yeah. So per per dollar, I mean, wow! I, apparently, I'm pretty unfamiliar with the wholesale industry. This was I, this was very like this was very like when uh, you know somebody asks Kim Kardashian how much a banana costs, and she's like, I don't know, yeah. ten bucks. <laughs> well, I'm going off like a, a restaurant price, right? So I took a re- I was like 10, 10 wings in a restaurant, maybe like eighteen bucks. I'll I'll bump that down. Damn, that is that is too many. I mean, what was he thinking? And <laughs> how? Like, look. There's a fame one of my favorite movies is Ocean's Eleven. Real telling on yeah. myself in terms of bro lifestyle here. Uh, yeah, you're the worst. Wh- of the worst. Yeah, I'm, I'm really the worst. Well, I'm, we're, I'm sure we're gonna get more into that when we talk about our next topic. But uh, <laughs> one of the things they make a joke about at the beginning of Ocean's Eleven is stealing Incan matrimonial head masks, which are massive, apparently like things that if you steal them, you can't move them because they're so huge. And how was this guy? Who was his fence? Who was going to sell off three million? Do you say three hundred? Wait, how? No, up to six million chicken wings. Six million? Like what? Do you, how? 
How? Like, what, what was his distribution network? He couldn't have had one. He's a school <laughs> administrator. What's happening here? I, I honestly, the best part of this to me is, I didn't know this, but you can't even serve chicken wings in school because I, they have yeah. bones and it's dangerous. Choking hazard, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the fact that I took this on to catch this guy is kind of funny in itself. Uh, yeah, that's, that's fucking awesome. Good for him. You know, I just, I just watched. Uh, I'm just in the middle of the show Ozark on on Netflix. Uh, <laughs> shout out, good man, my good friend Jason Bateman, and uh, this feels like an Ozark plotline where they're just money laundering via chicken wings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that I was almost thinking also Breaking Bad, but he yeah. has no meth talent. He just knows how to buy <laughs> chicken wings. Just knows how to how to buy wholesale at at a school uh, out of the school budget, but apparently Amazing. not. All right, so if you had to bezel uh, a school food, a lunch school yeah. food, what would you most be likely to embezzle? I mean, based on my consumption in the school lunchroom back in high school, it would be tuna fish sandwiches. Tuna fish sandwiches are played disgusting. a lot. <laughs> it's pretty gross. I w- I, look, I wouldn't do it. I'm not this guy. I don't, I don't need <laughs> six million pounds of tuna fish. But if it was me back in high school being like, hey, look, there's, there's a, I, I got, a, I got a, food, <laughs> a food of interest and a profit to be made, it would have been tuna. I remember my I, mom actually told me to stop eating tuna so much at lunch because it could have mercury in it. And I was yeah, like, fuck it, I'm wrong. going in. I, I don't care. And that explains a lot of my behavior today. No, I will say you are one of the only people I've met IRL that actually consumes Subway tuna. When there have been studies <laughs> that show that there is no oh tuna my God. in there. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I remember your fiance actually texted me that story and I was like, look, I don't want to know. Just, just tell me it's tuna, and I'll eat the tuna. It's fine. <laughs> just tell me it's tuna. That could have some implications. Well, I uh, I feel like we've done this topic now and uh, can move on to the uh, meat of the episode, but let's take oh, yeah. a break first. Sure. All right, so we still have Cousin Saw with us, and we're going to do something that's uh, a first-time thing for us, which most things are on this podcast. But we're going to review a movie, specifically a movie that has to do with food. Of course, I'm talking about one of the, I think, most successful food movies of last year, The Menu. Uh, Cousin Saw, for for those at home who don't know what this is, can you give us a brief synopsis? Yeah, I'll keep a high level. I like how you said it was one of the best food movies last year. I'm not sure if I can recognize any others, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> a high-level semi-spoilery overview, I would say, is this. So the menu follows a group of people who are going to one of the world's best restaurants, which is called the Hawthorne. The restaurant is led by Ray Fines playing Chef Julian Slowick, who's like a mercurial genius in the space. And we'll talk a little, little bit about where his inspiration came from. The movie centers on Nicholas Holt as Tyler, the insufferable foodie, and Anya Taylor-Joy as his date, Margot. Margot does not give a shit about fancy food, and Tyler really does. <laughs> <laughs> the movie, which is a relatable experience for us both, which again, I think we'll talk about. Yeah. <laughs> the, movie, the movie spends it spends the first half basically skewering in a comedic way, fine dining, uh, and mainly those who pretentiously go to fine dining restaurants and, and talk about it and judge it. And then eventually it's revealed that Chef Slowick has lost his mind due mainly to those rich assholes he serves his food to and is constantly judged by. 
and it turns out his tasting menu for the evening is designed to end with the murder of his patrons and the suicide of himself and his staff. That would be my my 32nd yeah, one minute overview. Pretty good. I'm glad you said spoilery because that was that was entirely spoilery. Yeah, I mean we can't do a synopsis of the film without spoiling. So yeah, it's true. It's honestly like it's honestly like it's on people who haven't seen it at this point. This movie came out like six months ago or something, so it's not oh, our yeah. fault. No, no, it's not. Blame yourselves, yeah. listeners. Blame yourselves. That is very much our mantra here. Um, well, look, I, I wanted to start this really at a thirty thousand foot level, and that is that you know. I found it really interesting that the writers of this movie, Will Tracy and Seth Reese, they used to write for The Onion, which is like obviously the most famous satirical publication of the last, what, 10, 20 years. And even though this is often described as a horror comedy, it's really a satire. Even the the directors themselves describe this as a satire. Um, Does that surprise you at all? Oh, no, it doesn't. Um, and, and I do think the characterization of the movie as a horror comedy by both critics and audiences is a little bit off. Uh, when, you, when you learn a bit more about the writers and their background and their intent for the film, satire makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I went into it expecting a horror movie, and I, was, I love a good horror movie. I truly do. Like, the Scream franchise is one of my favorite franchises of all time. And I was disappointed by the movie when I was approaching it as a horror. However, with the fact that it's a satire mind that got me thinking again. Now I listened to a podcast with one of the writers and they were saying, you know, the great thing about satire is that it builds. It basically like starts like good satire starts in a world that you can kind of recognize as your own. And then it slowly builds and builds in terms of absurdity in order to not lose the audience along the way, but then sort of like reflecting their world back to them in a way that's, you know, pretty shocking um, or, or that tells them something about how like, you know, mortifying their lives are uh, in a certain way. I, I feel like this movie lost me along the way. There were moments where I was just like, okay, that would absolutely never happen. And it really took me out of it. And I can tell you exactly where it lost me. But first I want to hear, did it, did it lose you or were you, or were you in it pretty much till the end? No, no, it lost me. And look, it, it did it, like the first, like I said, 30, 40 minutes, I, I really enjoyed from the satirical perspective. I think the reason why it lost me, and I'm not sure exactly when the point was, was the movie essentially decided to tell and not show the audience what the, what its core message was it had some you know uh, social class messages and and you know messages about art and criticism that yeah. they basically just really <laughs> like hammered to death and, and in a really obvious way yeah. um and yeah. that was that was a real bummer to me i mean i was i was along for the ride and if they had not tried so hard to explain to us exactly what the movie was doing it probably would have landed much better um it's funny i want to do uh, my my girlfriend's brother writes movie reviews on an app called letterbox and he's actually quite insightful i think he i think he has really good good takes and and, and writes movies well and his and his perspective on the menu was that it should have dispensed with anya taylor joy's margot character who's essentially an audience avatar right the person yeah, who's commenting yeah. throughout he said basically that it should have like dispensed with her entirely and i was trying to picture what that movie looked like and i think it's a better one 
If you wait, really? Just, I know, I, I really do. Because if you're just there with these douchebags going through the experience, then and not not having it explained and not having every single part of the message and movie and politics of what they're trying to communicate explained to you via the Anya Taylor Joy character, I'm, I'm sure it would have landed better in some way. So sure, she added like a nice little touch and. For us personally, I think uh, helped us reflect on our own relationships <laughs> in, in a fun <laughs> way, especially when they're at restaurants. Uh, yeah, I, I think it essentially, and again, I don't know exactly when, but it basically failed when it started to like really too obviously explain to the audience rather than bring us along for a more self-serious satirical ride in the way of like a veep right veep never has to explain the joke veep is yeah a, a, a political satire armando Iannucci, who created veep is one of the great satirical uh, political satirists of our time and it never has to turn to the camera and be like politics is stupid no <laughs> they yeah they like uh they just show you by the characters behavior i think that's where, where it failed look i'm not gonna lie i i am i'm way lower brow than you i think we would all agree right <laughs> like I, I i have my favorite movies are the ones where like you know zach efron's in a fraternity and you know he's uh uh he needs to figure out a way to stay in the fraternity an extra year and take down the sorority next door so i i'm not gonna like sit here and pretend i'm roger ebert or anything but there was a specific moment actually for me where even for me it was too far you know and I feel like it's because it happened with a character that I particularly resonated with. And can you guess which one? Oh, obviously Tyler, the Nicholas Holt character who plays the insufferable, condescending, pretentious foodie throughout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so for those of you who haven't seen the movie, um, which honestly, kudos on still listening to this podcast this far if you haven't. But basically – this is the kind of guy that shows up to a restaurant and just like, you know, takes pictures when he's not supposed to, stops the meal because he's got to take pictures or film content. The kind of guy that like idolizes the chef and is like able to tell the backstory of the chef and whatnot. And I've, I definitely in the build up to the film was recognizing myself in all of that. Right. Like I've, I've literally done all of that. You know, you and I were just at a wonderful tasting menu uh, out in Cartagena, Colombia. And I stopped every single one of us from taking a bite in order to be able to take pictures of all of our food um, at every single course, at all nine courses. I didn't forget a single one. Now, the, uh, the other part of that is, you know, I'm absolutely the guy who looks at chefs as kind of celebrities. Uh, and so I'm not sure I have the obsession that the Tyler Holt character did, but I, it certainly resonated with me to an extent. Now where it lost me was when his obsession drives him literally to suicide. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you, can you break down a little bit how that happens for the audience? Well, yeah. And a key component of that, of that character is that he he acts as if he knows the food and the quote-unquote art of what the restaurant's doing as right. well as, if not better, than the people doing it themselves. Um, he he uh, pretentiously brags of, or like, like points out how he identified a particular uh, flavor of a, of a dish. <laughs> one, yeah. of the, one of the best line deliveries of the movie is by uh, Ralph Fiennes, Steph Slowick, in reaction to his kind of, uh, my God, like, Palette preening, yeah, palette, but preening, like you know, braggy kind of kind of way of going approaching food, and so eventually, as as his punishment, because again, the movie is in some way 
a revenge of, of Chef Slowick against all these different characters who eat his food. Eat his food. Uh, the chef makes Tyler, played by Nicholas Holt, cook for <laughs> cook for the restaurant. Then tells him <laughs> tells him that Nicholas Holt's character is the reason why all the mystery has been drained from his art. Whispers something in his ear that the that the writers were too cowardly to uh, <laughs> actually write out and, and show the audience. And then the character kills himself. <laughs> that was my that was my second favorite line of the entire movie where. <laughs> Ray Fiennes goes, you are why the mystery has been drained from our art. <laughs> Honestly, I've never resonated with a line more. I feel like I could get that line tattooed. The question is, should I? Uh, the question is not should you, it's when and where. You have it tattooed. <laughs> that feels like a bet I'm going to lose. Like We're, we're going to bet on a Chelsea match or something, and the, the punishment is going to be I have to get that line tattooed. Oh, yeah, and because it's Chelsea, I will naturally win the bet. Yeah, yeah. As we saw today, but that is a separate podcast. I uh, I wanted to know, yeah. So that's where basically it lost me. I I feel like the, it really took me along for the ride, and I was like, yeah, that this would be mortifying. And if the chef told me to, like, for example, I'm going to confess, I've given Evan Funky a lot of stick um, for the way he cooks pasta. Uh, I I feel like he's really famous and renowned for cooking pasta, but to me. And to my fiance, I'll give her credit because she's the one who first brought this to my attention. He's actually making fresh pasta where it doesn't need to be made and then pro- like proceeding to undercook it so because he's so <laughs> fanatical about it being al dente. And so like I am so you know particular about the way I like my pasta that I, I've criticized him left and right. But now I'm going to have nightmares of him turning to me at Mother Wolf or Felix and being like, okay – you make the fucking cash from paper yourself <laughs> and then just like watch me in the ki- in the kitchen as I do it and proceed to royally screw it up. So <laughs> that is, that is a nightmare for me now. Um, I don't think I'd kill myself over it, but you know, I- I'd be embarrassed. I, I will say, I- I'm surprised it took the, mo- it took you that long to get lost by the movie. Certainly that was like one of those moments where it was like, okay, sure. I think, I think for me, now that I'm reflecting on it, those conversations between uh, the chef and Margot, where they really try to like overtly be like, there are different social classes here. Which class are you? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's us versus them. I'm like, all right, guy. Right, that, that was a thing yeah. when, when it kind of lost me. But you no, know, it makes a lot of sense that when the character that most reflects you kills himself, you were like, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. literally, the question of would you do the same thing? And I think the most worrying part is up to that point, the answer was yes. I would have reacted. <laughs> I would you would have, have cooked the meal too. You would yeah. Have, yeah. Oh, okay. Would you have not? Oh my god. I well, here's the thing. I I definitely would have, <laughs> but I mean, uh, just because I like to sh- try to show off, and I think I can cook some good shit. The, the The funniest part of that whole thing was that he asked him to cook, and Tyler didn't have anything in his bag. Man, I actually yeah 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 yeah. That's that true. that was he, that was that's good. true. Like you would have to have a recipe ready like that you make all the time, even if it's just like tomato soup or something. But like, yeah, he like Tyler is just spewing out ridiculous ingredients and then just basically throws them in a pot and sees what happens. But I I guess I'm curious, what would be your go to dish in that situation? Life or death? Well, okay, so I got a couple of Pakistani dishes in my bag. Kima, uh, Kima alu, which is my favorite dish, would be probably a go to. 
Uh, I can make a mean grilled cheese sandwich. That'd probably be a safe, safe bet. That's okay. safe. That's safe. Crowd, crowd pleaser for sure. Yeah. Uh, that might be. That might be. Yeah. I might, I might go Pakistani, and I also think the ethnic component of switching of, of like the you know American Norwegian high end. Yeah. Switching yeah, it up. Yeah. I can. I can turn the tables. I also <laughs> think that would that would put the white chef in a really uncomfortable position. Ex- exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You're gonna critique my Kimalu? No way, man. Uh, yeah. I, no, no, I could have won. He'd get canceled so fast. <laughs> yeah. I, I Not sure how concerned make... he'd be about it since he was going to self-immolate by the end of the night, <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, it's a true. It's true. I don't know. Cancellation is pretty scary, even for people who are uh, about to die. <laughs> yeah, for me, I think I'd probably make you, – you didn't ask, but I'm going to volunteer. I think I would probably make Kasha Pepe because I do think I've, I've recently perfected it. And actually, shout out to my friend, uh, journalist Paul Feinstein, who – basically taught me how to make it by just telling me how he makes it. And I was like, that makes so much sense. Maybe one time we'll do an entire episode on Kasha Pepe. I appreciate the humble brag that a famous journalist taught you how to make pasta. Little, little, little name drop for you there. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Well, we need, we need a sound effect every time I name drop. Um, (laughs) That would be good. Okay. Look, I, so they're, they're onion writers, the guys who wrote the menu. So I have to ask you, what's the best onion headline that could be cut that could come from this movie? (laughs) What, when, okay. Part of given the the whole movie is like basically an onion headline, right? Like it's hard to make a, a headline about the movie, but I think I would either. So one of my favorite onion sort of bits is area man. They refer to the general area man, which is like this random dude who does uh, insane shit. And I said, "Is it like Florida man?" Kind of, yeah, yeah, same, same idea. Uh, yeah. So mine is area man hangs self in top restaurant, praises mouthfeel experience. <laughs> That's really good. That's really good. And then my more punny, yeah. my more punny option was self immolation is the hottest new trend in fat and fine dining. That's also good. I, I think if you don't get the uh, infatuation job, we could make a strong campaign for you to get the job <laughs> at the Onion. That was so, good. yeah, yeah, keep going, keep going. So look, uh, to your point earlier, the movie approaches the the restaurant industry and fine dining from a bunch of different angles. Sometimes a little heavy handedly, right? There's like have to succeed and be validated. There's the brainwashing that happens. Uh, within really tightly run kitchens and like sort of the toxic environments that happen there. Mm -hmm. And there's like one of my favorite topics is the power of the food critic to make or break restaurants and sort of like the self-importance that comes with that. I'm curious if any of these angles resonated with you. Uh, So resonated personally would be the foodie character. Um, and we're going to get to which characters we are, each of us think we most identify with or think the other most identifies with, which I think is interesting. But for me, it's watching Tyler. I actually had a friend who watched the menu before I did and then texted me saying that, <laughs> texted me saying that uh, he could imagine that me as Tyler and my girlfriend as Margot had probably oh, yeah. had verbatim conversations from the menu at actual restaurant experiences, which 100%. he was not, <laughs> was not entirely wrong about. And also that same friend reminded me that uh, while we were eating once uh, on a trip in Mexico City, I used the word mouthfeel to describe something you that we were eating. Not. And it made me want to kill myself. Yeah. You so, did not. <laughs> so maybe, the, not yeah, no, I apparently I did. I don't, rem- I don't remember doing that, but apparently it happened. 
and I wow. have to live with that forever. So, do you so remember what the dish was? I feel like it was at the restaurant M. I, I think it restaurant. was great place. Uh, but I don't, I don't remember saying it. So in, in terms of personal, uh, you know, personal reson, uh, resonance, Tyler uh, certainly uh, hit where it hurt some of the character characters' lives and stuff. More generally, yeah. though, I think I think the the character of the chef under immense pressure and criticism uh, and second guessing to succeed is probably one of the more true elements of, of the entire story. Right. Yeah, each, right. each of the uh, patrons is a character to some extent, but the chef himself, who yes, yeah, obviously is, is two, is actually the one who I, I think that reality of how much pressure and then also how much worship the staff has for yeah. said chef is yeah. actually maybe one of the more um, resonant to reality and, and places like Noma and, um, and Alinea and stuff like that. By, by yeah. Actually be true. yeah. And that, so that for sure was one of the more compelling aspects of the, the characters for me, uh, this sort of like notion of like chef as like perfectionist artist that's always trying to improve and at some point reaches a peak where not there's not enough validation in the world to like scratch that itch mm-hmm. you know what i mean like yeah. i feel that's that part resonated with me as someone who's like really perfectionist and tries to be the best at what he does <laughs> i'm just kidding no just man, kidding. I, I, that's not really a joke my man i no, it is absolutely a joke but um <laughs> but uh but i i, I was gonna say Initially, I was going to say a lot of the other angles I, f- I found to be kind of superfluous. Like, for example, there's like the finance bros who are kind of like, you know, for lack of a better term, dick swinging that they're even there, you know, and, and, and sort of trying to prove to the, the people that own the restaurant that they kind of like are in a position of power uh, just by fact that by by the fact that they're the diners and they're being served, mm-hmm. um, there's the other like washed up actor who is also trying to trade on power dynamics a little bit by making it seem like he knows the chef um, yeah. when in fact he doesn't, and that's sort of like you know comments on the commodification of the of like how chefs have become celebrities, and if you know them, you're kind of cool. That's why I name drop to the extent that I do. <laughs> and uh, th- I mean, that whole angle, however, doesn't resonate at all with me. I feel like that's one where he, they were just like, they just needed an extra storyline and they threw one in. So I feel like to me, the, the angle that really resonates again, Tyler, obviously, that's one that, that really gets me. But the finance bros, there was something to that. You know, like I feel th- th- like, I've definitely dined with people that go to dinner and, and treat it as like, this is an opportunity for them to be Kings. You know what I mean? Yeah. And well, I think, I, I think the finance bros in particular are there for a particular purpose. One is to feed into the social commentary the movie's trying to make about like, uh, you know, rich versus poor and, and, uh, server versus served and they in particular those characters try to wield power over the restaurant by saying they know the guy who owns it right yeah who pays yeah for it. um and so i think there's probably a, 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 a actual business angle there as well where uh you know owner of kind of in the, like in the movie chef this happens too briefly but the power of the owner and financier versus the power of the actual 
quote unquote artist, the chef yeah. himself. Yeah. And, uh, and, but the but the actor, over the hill actor played by John Leguizamo, uh, is probably the most superfluous. But I think also, so each patron who is invited to this dinner has a specific purpose for being there. The critic, a uh, 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 you know shitty politician, the finance guys. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> the actor who name drops is there because. He made a movie that the chef hated and thought it was like an like an insult to art, which was probably the funniest reason that was that funny. he chose to to kill somebody. But he was also the most superfluous. I thought it was really funny when the coast guard comes and says like, "Hey, are you the guy from that movie?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and references the movie the chef hates. I thought that was really funny. But uh, and and it's sort of like also in a weird way spoke to like the taste of the general consumer versus the consumer that's consuming things for high art mm-hmm. like how there's a bit of a how there's a bit of a distance there um but obviously now i'm getting a little bit heady um so to bring it back down to earth uh would you describe yourself you've said that you describe yourself as a tyler but i feel like you're more of a margo yeah i this made me laugh that you thought that and, and here's where I went with that, because in no way do I, so Margo, the character who's looking at these fine dining dishes and at the tasting menu and being like, this is fucking stupid. This isn't food. <laughs> and like, why do you, why do you care about this? Like roll my eyes. Oh, by I, the way, I'm sorry. Yeah. One of my favorite dishes that they served in this entire, uh, entire tasting menu was the breadless bread. Yeah. Uh, bread yeah, course. Yeah. 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 It was basically just the dipping sauces and no bread. It yeah. was awesome. <laughs> And that was one where the Nicholas Holt character goes, oh, my God, genius. It's genius. It up. Yeah. And she's like, there's no fucking food here. Be honest. <laughs> be honest. Which would you have been? Ooh, I would have. Oh, oh I would have been. the. This is genius. I would have been. Me like, too. Ooh, how Me too. playful. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> what an idea. And uh, and my girlfriend, who is my Margot sitting across the table, would have been like, I'm fucking hungry. Where's the bread? Yeah. Where's the yeah, bread? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, so, it really is a testament to how stupid we are. Yeah, yeah, no, it is, and how 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 high beast we are, willing to willing to take it all. Uh, so, so I thought you comparing me to Margo was too funny because it made me realize that the idea of Margo is a relative concept. So, in my it's life, it's relative for sure. In my life, seventy percent of people, at least around me, are Margos. My girlfriend, most uh, most obviously, who doesn't really give a shit about like fancy food and stuff like that. And so, when I take her out and try to like talk much the way tyler does about how exciting it is that we're eating this she's just like okay i don't like (laughs) i don't like the spice on this or something uh however to you i would say about 95 percent of the people in the world are margos 100 that's why that's why i probably characterize you as a margo because like i've probably taken you to restaurants and been super stoked about it and then you've been like I, I don't really I don't really care about this man. Wait, I'm uh, curious. Wait, what does that happen? I feel like I'm pretty I feel like I'm pretty oh, down no, most of the time. You, you have become that, but I feel like well, especially with Middle Eastern food, it's like weird. Oh yeah. It's weird how much you hate hummus. <laughs> that, that that's actually true. Although to be fair, that's more of a personal personal taste. But yeah, if you take me to a Middle Eastern restaurant, I, I become a hardcore Margot. But again, that's and I meant to explain myself before we get any uh cancelable accusations, <laughs> <laughs> accusations coming it's, our way it's, it's pure racism is what it oh, is yeah 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 i just don't like them no i <laughs> i the, my personal take me I, I'm, I'm i'm pakistani south asian and there's a lot of overlap in the styles of food that middle eastern and pakistani cuisine creates but because it's so close and because it's just slightly different it feels wrong to me sometimes for example i literally uh, I went to a Lebanese restaurant recently and we had 
a meal called uh, of kofta and kofta's uh, a meatball, yeah. a spice meatball they have it in pakistan it's cooked in like a, a rich curry very savory and their kofta in the lebanese restaurant was made in a sweet pomegranate sauce and i was like and it tasted good i was like look kofta is good pomegranate is good Kofta is not supposed to be sweet. <laughs> in my, sounds, in my head, I have a little. That sounds thing. like a Persian thing. Like Persians love to like make yeah, pomegranate soup. That's right. Uh, uh, sauces, which I'm down with, but I can see how like, yeah, if it's not what you're used to and you're expecting something different, I could see why you'd be taken aback. That's uh, my my hair grows blonde and long, and I turn into a prostitute, and I and I become full Margot in those restaurants. Margot does a. Uh, She's kind of the hero, right? We talked about this. And uh, the she kind of like breaks Ray Fine's brain by ordering a burger. Can we talk about that burger real quick? Yes, we can. I think it looked mid. Basically, like she appeals to his like sense of nostalgia because it turns out he was a burger flipper way back when. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what got his like love for food going. And um, – basically she's like, I want a burger. And it kind of like reawakens this passion for cooking that it seems like he's lost, but he makes this burger. And I thought it looked like kind of like ass. Uh, this is an insane take. The burger looked really good. <laughs> the no, burger looked didn't. so good. Yeah, no, it really did. So actually I also listened to a podcast about the movie and apparently the director, I believe it was actually used to be uh, a cook in a restaurant and cooked that actual burger and for the movie, cooked it for Dominique Crenn, who was uh, who was a Michelin-starred chef, who was the consultant on the movie, for her approval before they uh, before they included it. I thought it looked great. Apparently, Dominique Crenn approved. Awesome, and I thought it looked fucking delicious. I don't know where this take is coming from. I just think it looked like one of those like really chefy burgers that you get at an expensive restaurant that are you know without fail unsatisfying this is why i can't wait for the burger countdown i think you got some spicy burger takes man i don't know about this one that burger looked fucking perfect i bet you if you had it you would be like was that worth 30 dollars <laughs> i think that she paid i mean well she paid 10 for it in the movie but also oh yeah she paid 10 in the movie okay actually yeah. for 10 bucks that ain't bad but yeah yeah i will say i just think there. i just think for 10 bucks still you could you could do better Sure. Oh, I, I don't know about that, man. I did think that that was another p- a stupid part of the movie, though, where she, like, breaks through in the midst of this, like, you know, upcoming murder spree uh, and, like, appeals to his, like, sense of initial wonder and joy of cooking. And then as soon as she eats it, he's like, all right, back to business. Let's kill ourselves. And, like, that, <laughs> nothing really changes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Dumb, yeah. dumb. I, I uh, so one thing we haven't really gotten into is that the movie itself is structured as a tasting menu, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like every single section of the movie is like, okay, this is the appetizer, this is the next course. Now we're moving on to the main course. Now it's dessert, the finale. Um, it really got me thinking about the tasting menu in general and how, as a dining experience, it can really suck. Like I've had some horrific tasting menus in terms of just like I've left feeling so unsatisfied. Um, My question to you is like, who is the tasting menu for? Is it mostly for the audience or is it just kind of like a masturbatory experience for the chef? (laughs) I, (laughs) 
Tasting menus rock. Bar none. I fucking love <laughs> bar tasting none? menus. Bar none. Bar You've none. You've never I had one you didn't enjoy. I've had one and I'll talk about it. But as a whole, I love the idea of a tasting menu. I love being like, all right, man, do your thing. You said it's masturbatory, masturbatory exercise for the chef. I'm in the middle of the bukkake, man. I'm like, pour, pour the tasting <laughs> menu all over me. Show me what it's about. Wow. Show me what you want to cook. And uh, look, I, I, have, I mean, I've, the only time I've had a bad tasting menu experience was when it wasn't, it was like a, you know, addition to the a la carte menu. And basically they did not adjust for portion sizes. That was bad. There was like way too much food. But as a whole, I love, we just had an incredible tasting menu on a recent trip. And I love taking it, being like, look, I like eating food, but I am not, I am not the chef. I don't know what, what actually yeah. goes into great food. And if a, a chef or the person designing the meal has an idea of what, what goes well together, what a good experience looks like, I'll totally let them roll with it, man. They're the expert. So yeah, yeah no, I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I was actually curious. Like what, how have you had, have you had like multiple bad tasting? Menus? Look, like, what, this is why, this is why I'm a man of the people and you're not. <laughs> I feel like it. It comes down to do I feel like I'm getting bang for my buck? And what I mean for that is you're obviously going to pay a high ticket price when you're doing a tasting menu. But you want to walk away with a couple feelings. You want to walk away like – first of all, you want to walk away full. If I'm not full and I have to buy a taco after dinner, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> Second of all, you want to walk away feeling like you've had some bites that you're going to remember. There's mm. nothing worse than a tasting menu that you walk away from and five years down the road, you're like, I remember absolutely nothing from that <laughs> five, meal. Five As years. A, <laughs> yeah, five years. Good food, good food lasts. Good food endures, you know? I, f- I feel like, yeah, like think about like, you know, I've had some meals from 10 years ago that I'm like, oh, still keep me up at night in like in, <laughs> in, in a hot way. And uh, I, it's just, it's just. I, I, I need to remember something from the meal. Um, and so a lot of tasting menus just don't do it for me in that way. And I, a lot, you know, I'd say probably like percentage wise, I'm talking like 75% of them have been good and 25% are unsatisfactory. But I think I remember the bad ones because it's an investment, you know, like it's, it's, it's a, it's like paying for a show. And if you don't like the show, you're going to remember it, you know? So, um, to me, it's a bit of a crapshoot. The tasting menu is a bit of a crapshoot. And when given the option, I'm probably going to go with the a la carte version over the tasting menu. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the financial investment part is fair, I, but I, I think, I mean, look, this is an expectations thing. I think even, even when I put out, uh, like we'd have to pay for like a, a tasting menu and, and the extra dollars as soon as I've committed to it, I'm just in it for the good experience and to like taste something good, not necessarily memorable for the rest of my life, but just have an experience where I'm not worried about what's coming my way. I like surprises. I love being surprised. So always yeah, a good time. Fucking, fucking enjoy that. So yeah, I mean, it could just be like a, 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 that I'm particularly credulous of a chef's decisions and I'm down for whatever they have uh, happen to uh, throw my way. So yeah, no, I'm I am I'm open to tasting menus and for all the masturbation exercises a chef wants to go through and providing one. Well, we're gonna clip that part of, <laughs> of what you just said. Um, best one and worst one you've had. Uh, I mean, look, recency bias for sure, but uh, 
recently on our trip to Cartagena for your bachelor party, we went to Carmen, um, had a tasting menu there. It was widely regarded as a top restaurant in the city, and it was fucking amazing. Now, to be clear also, one of the things that certainly added to that was that it was insanely, insanely cheap yeah. <laughs> because of the- It was bang for your buck. Oh, I, mean, well, buck. I mean, there's there's a lot of factors that go into that, including the exchange rate between the dollar and the Cartagena pesos. But uh, between like for, for what we got, uh, and not even just for what we got. I mean, uh, put put money out the window. That experience, the fact that we got you know drink pairings with it as well, that were fun. I mean, it was just so good. I mean, I, I mean, I've had tasting menus elsewhere too, but really none particularly stand out as much as that one. Um, yeah. And of course, I, I will say, tasting menus are for special occasions in general, right? In, in my opinion, right? Uh, big holidays, good like uh, good people, good crowds. Um, uh, um, moments where you're really being uh, really celebrating a moment. And I think that's part of the reason why I associate so good, many good memories, because it's something we haven't talked about. It might be for another podcast is how much context changes your experience of a restaurant, yeah. just like experience, it changes your experience of a movie or anything else. But like when you're just at that right moment, that right night with the perfect, uh, perfect group, um, and you have a tasting menu, making sure that like no one's really worrying about who ordered what and who got an extra glass of wine or whatever, then then it lands perfectly. I think that that Fair night enough. at Carmen was was ideal. Look, I think that's a beautiful note to end that discussion on. <laughs> we we are uh, getting getting on a bit for our uh, podcast listeners, so I want to close this actually on on the note that I think this movie shows us that the food world is ripe for more satire. I feel like that I really enjoyed this. I want to see more and I want to see it done even better. So I've come up with a few ideas for you that I would like to pitch. Okay. Mm -hmm. You ready? You ready? Okay. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. The first one is a snow piercer style dystopian world where there are like 50 people left in existence and the only food source left on the planet is one fine dining restaurant. Only the ultra rich can afford to eat there because of supply and demand factors, and the rest of the people are staff slash slaves. What do you think? Uh, I see a lot of potential plot and world building holes in this concept, but I don't hate it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I'm what I'm envisioning because uh, because I want to like I, I like casting movies. I want to I want to see if I can yeah cast a it cast it. All right, we got <laughs> as the head chef, who I'm assuming is a person of some esteem in this world. Yeah. Jesse Plemons of Breaking Bad. And I absolutely love that. Love fucking Jesse Plemons. I think he play it perfectly. Hannibal Burris as Chef de Cuisine. <laughs> <in Jesse Plemons. laughs> so this is a comedy. Well, I mean, I, I actually know, and I'm looking at the rest of my casting choices, and I think it is, because I also want a rich guy eating and a, and a, a, a staff slash servant character as well. And I cast... The Rock as a rich guy and Jason Bateman, <laughs> Jason Bateman as like the uh, exasperated staff member. Oh, I would I, flip that. I would flip that. See, no, I initially had it flipped, but I actually think it's funnier. I, first of all, Rock deserves more com uh, comedy roles. I think he can play them well. And yeah. Jason Bateman as like an affronted, harassed, uh, uh, down on his luck staff member of this restaurant. That's his. That's his bread and butter. He could kill that. Look, it's an interesting casting choice. I think you're you're subverting the expectation, so I'm here for it. Okay, my, my final idea is this Dave Portney biopic. <laughs> uh, absolutely not. 
<laughs> even if I would cast you as Dave Portnoy in this scenario. <laughs> I would take that role. That's a career-making role. <laughs> Dave Portnoy, who, by the way, is, uh, yeah, not a great dude, man. Not a great yeah. guy. I don't know yeah, if he's a that's, biopic. That's what makes it great as a satirical concept. Okay, I know that we're coming up on time, but I do want to ask you. Okay, last question. You, you noted that the place where the menu lost you is where Tyler, the character that most resonated with you, killed himself yeah. <laughs> because he didn't cook a good meal. That's right. What actual experience in real life where a someone that you looked up to and revered shat on your entire life would make you <laughs> kill yourself? <laughs> This is a therapy session that my, <laughs> my that my uh, insurance does not cover. Uh, uh, that's really tough, man. Um, honestly, it would the only thing that would get me close is if like Jonathan Gold came back from the dead. <laughs> and, yeah, and was yeah. Like, and was like the LA countdown is the worst thing that happened to LA. No, food. it was like yeah, no. The LA countdown <laughs> is not not just the worst thing that's happened to LA food. The LA countdown is going to destroy the world. Stop right now. <laughs> I he's gonna he's like I can't say more, but I've been to the other side, and I know that this is how the world ends. Stop right now, <laughs> and that's the only way. Okay, but even in this scenario, then you become martyred because you killed yourself and saved the world from the LA countdown's destruction. Can't even can't even uh, create a story where you're not sort of the hero tragic in this sense yeah Come well on. look i i just think that's my destiny and that's all there is to it <laughs> hey cousin saul i want to thank you for coming on for a second episode obviously our first one broke the internet but i think the sequel is going to be a blockbuster too that's all i would expect absolutely good you good, good all right man thanks for coming on take care bro bye Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Countdown, the podcast. If you like what you heard, or even if you didn't, you just want to do us a solid, go to wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a rating or a follow. If you have any ideas about what you'd like to hear on the podcast in terms of topics or guests, shoot us a DM on either TikTok or Instagram at the LA Countdown. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N.